0: This is Pastor Joel with Right Response Ministries. Our conviction is that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So our mission is to fill the minds of the people of God with the truth of God's Word. This particular podcast is called Church in Crisis a pastor's thoughts on the coronavirus. Originally, this was just a collection of pastoral addresses that were specifically presented to the members of my local church. But under the prompting of other men and women that I trust, I've decided that perhaps this might be a benefit to the greater church at large. I hope that by God's grace, that proves to be the case. Listen now. Hi, I wanted to take a moment and talk about the coronavirus a little bit more, how it pertains to the church, and especially uh, regarding Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 has been uh, addressed and brought into the equation multiple times by Uh, multiple ministers of the gospel, multiple pastors and theologians and seminary professors. And I I think that it's been helpful in some part, but I think there are um, a few things that are perhaps missing, uh, a few uh, misinterpretations, misapplications. And so I I want to take a moment and address some of that. So let's start by just reading Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So that's verse one. All we're getting there is just the idea, once again, which we see all throughout the scripture, that God is sovereign over everything. He's not just sovereign over authority. That's particularly what's being addressed in Romans 13 verse 1. But God is sovereign over everything. The late great R.C. Sproul used to say that uh, if there's even one single maverick molecule in all the universe, then we have no reason to be at peace or to to feel a sense of security and safety. What, What he's saying is that Everything is underneath uh, the banner of God's control. Everything is underneath God's sovereignty. And if there was anything that wasn't, not just uh, an authoritative institution, but even one rogue molecule, uh, then the people of God would have no reason to feel a sense of safety and security. So there's nothing outside of God's sovereignty. And what we're seeing particularly in verse 1 of Romans 13 is that God's sovereignty, uh, it is over all things, including authority, those who are in authority. So there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the governing authorities have been instituted by God. Government, civil governments, the civil magistrate is an institution that has been divinely instituted by God himself. We have three primary spheres in human society, in human life, that that are uh, very clearly in the scripture Uh, communicated to us as divine institutions one is the family the family is not man's idea it's God's idea male and female he created uh, them God is the one who instituted marriage and children so God instituted the family the second is that God instituted the church and so we have uh, the church and its officers and its members that again is instituted by God the third institution that that is very clearly a, a divinely instituted organization is the civil magistrate, the civil uh, government. And we find that in in a few texts, but Romans 13 is perhaps the clearest so these three institutions the family the church and the government have all been instituted divinely by God himself and it all falls underneath God's sovereign authority so those who are in these positions of authority in these three human institutions ultimately have been placed there uh, sovereignly by God there's no authority that exists that was not instituted by God that's verse one verse two now Romans 13 says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. By resisting the governing authorities, you are ultimately resisting what God has appointed because God is sovereign over them. And it continues, it says, and those who resist will incur judgment. All right, verse three now, for rulers are not a terror. Now this is, we have prescriptive text we have descriptive text prescriptive is an imperative it's something that is uh, very explicitly and clearly something that God is prescribing prescriptive he is it's an imperative a command that God is giving to us now this is not prescriptive rather we we must understand these next few verses as descriptive God is not prescribing something in these next few verses but rather uh, God's word is describing descriptive he is describing what government is supposed to be what it's supposed to be according to his law and his intention, his design for government. So this is verse 3 now. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. That's what they're supposed to be, right? This implies that God's design for civil authorities is that they would be they, they would be civil authorities underneath God's law. And therefore, if they are legislating and executing God's law, then... Other citizens underneath their jurisdiction who are also seeking to obey God's law have nothing to fear right? So if you have good government underneath God's law, that uh, this is a descriptive text just describing what government is supposed to be. If you have the kind of government that we're supposed to have, that government which is in submission to God's law, recognizing that God's authority supersedes their authority, then any citizen underneath their authority that is also seeking to obey God's law will have nothing to fear, right? So rulers are meant to be, they're meant to be Uh, Not a terror to good conduct, but a terror to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do you want to live as a citizen who is is not afraid of the governing authorities and and getting in trouble and being punished by them? Well, then what do you do? Then do what is right. Do what is good and you will receive his approval. Again, a descriptive text assuming that the governing authorities are under God's law. Verse 4 now. For he is God's deacon, right? The the government works for God. The government works for God. He is God's deacon. He is God's servant for your good. Speaking to Christians at Rome. Roman citizens who are also citizens of heaven, right? Every Christian has at least a dual citizenship. We are first and foremost, by virtue of our union with Christ through faith, we are citizens of heaven, but we also are citizens of whatever whatever nation, whatever government, whatever country we happen to be a part of here in this world, in this life. When Paul writes to uh, the Ephesians, he says, I write to the saints at Ephesus right they're saints first so that their, their first identity their first citizenship is in heaven in Christ uh, but at the same time simultaneously they have a dual citizenship they are citizens in heaven and citizens at Ephesus so too Paul writing to the Romans they are citizens in heaven citizens with Christ but also citizens of Rome for he again the government is God's servant this is verse 4 God's deacon for your good again a, a descriptive text Describing government as it should be in submission to God's law. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Now, wrong right there is not talking about the subjective wrong. It's not saying if you do wrong according to, according to what the civil magistrate determines to be wrong outside of, apart from what God has determined to be wrong in his law. That's not what's being said. When it says if you do wrong, it is speaking of wrong in a universal, absolute, objective sense, meaning if you do wrong according, not to the government, but according to God's law. If you sin, if you breach God's law, if you do that which is absolutely, ultimately wrong that that which is a sin then you should have something to fear again a descriptive text Assuming that the government is righteous. Assuming that the government is doing what God instituted it to do. What it is intended by God to do. Government is intended by God and was instituted by God, if it is functioning properly, to be God's deacon. Not working apart from God on its own terms, but under God as God's deacon, as God's servant, for the good, the glory of God, and the good of all those citizens who are underneath its its authority. So if you do wrong, that is, do something not just that the government deems as wrong, but something that is truly wrong according to God's law, then you should be afraid. So if you don't want to have fear, do those things which are good. Obey God's law. If you do something that is wrong, if you breach God's law, then you should be afraid. For the government, he does not bear the sword in vain. That's one of God's uh, purposes. Again, a descriptive text, one of what God is describing in his word in Romans 13 is that the government is meant to bear the sword and it does not bear the sword in vain. To the church, right, we have the family, the church and the civil magistrate, those three divine institutions. To the church has been given the sword of the spirit and we are seeking ultimately to change hearts by persuasion. The government has been given the physical sword, which is meant to ultimately, um, it's meant to deter wicked behavior by coercion. Let me say that again. So the church, both of these are divine institutions, the church and the civil magistrate. The church has been given the sword of the spirit to change hearts, to cut and slice men's hearts, to divide bone from marrow, soul from spirit, a double-edged sword. But it is a spiritual sword that works through the power of persuasion. It works through preaching. It's a spiritual sword. Uh, the government sword is a literal physical sword and it does not work through persuasion but rather it is given by God, this physical sword, to deter wicked behavior by coercion. The church doesn't get to coerce but the government does. They have been given the sword and it is not just a prop. It's not just for show. They've been given the sword and not in vain. They've been given the sword to use it against the evildoer. For again, he, that is the civil magistrate, is the servant of of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore those who are citizens under that government should be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath executed through his deacon the civil magistrate but also for the sake of our conscience, so that we would not have a a guilty conscience knowing that ultimately we're rebelling against God's authority because we're rebelling against uh, a lesser authority that God has instituted, namely the civil magistrate. That was verse 5. Now verse 6. For because of this you also pay taxes. Now, this is key, right? We're getting, now, we're getting specific. This is still descriptive, but it's about to become prescriptive here in just a moment. So, verse 6, because of this, this reality that God is sovereign over everything, God's the ultimate authority, and God has instituted divinely lesser authorities underneath his authority, not separate from his authority, but under his authority to serve as deacons, to be servants executing his will in his world. And so because of that reality, because the government is meant to be God's deacon in authority, but under his authority, executing, carrying, carrying out, providentially carrying out God's sovereign rule, because of that very case, that very fact, that's why we pay taxes to the civil magistrate, because they work for God. That is, they are intended to work from God for God. This is all descriptive. If the government is doing what God says, then it is functioning as God's servant, God's deacon, and therefore we should financially pay taxes to the government to support them in their, in their godly work, in their righteous work of being a deacon for God. So because of this, we pay taxes. For the authorities, it continues, are ministers of God. Again, descriptive, that's what government is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a minister of God. Just like we have ministers of God in the church, that is, the officers of the church, elders and deacons, ministering the sword of the Spirit through per, per, uh, persuasion, through preaching, we also have ministers of God in the civil magistrate, in the, in the sphere of the government, um, who are also ministering for God with the physical sword through coercion. Okay, so they're ministers of God, and that's why we should support them. In the same way that we should pay tithes to support ministers of God in the church who use the spiritual sword, we should pay taxes to support the ministers of God who who are serving in the sphere of the civil magistrate, bearing the literal sword, the physical sword, through coercion, attending to this very thing. Now, verse 7. Here here is prescriptive, no longer descriptive, but we have an imperative, clear imperative here. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now that word honor has a double meaning. Uh, In its first meaning, it speaks to a financial payment, that is either given or received. Respect can be used likewise, and then certainly revenue and taxes is used in that. So as far as our submission, right, as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. Citizens of heaven, but also, citizens of the of the state the human governing state that we happen to be a part of, so if you 're in America and you 're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States of America, and as it pertains to your subjection, your submission to the governing authorities that God has instituted in the united States of America, you have an obligation under God to be subject to them, but, but the, the primary prescriptive text that describes what way we are subjected to them, right? The, the, the one verse, verse 7, that gets prescriptive, not descriptive, and begins to, uh, with specificity, with clarity, begins to, uh, to prescribe how we should submit to the governing authorities is taxes. Now, I think of uh, Jesus, who also, when he was being questioned, right? He was being questioned, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? right because Rome had infiltrated uh, the Jewish nation and and people were bothered by that and and rightfully so and so they're trying to trap Jesus they say Jesus is is it right for us as 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 Israelites to pay taxes to Caesar to pay taxes to Rome and Jesus says give me a denarius and he takes the coin and he looks at it there's a graven image on the coin of Caesar and, and Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. Now there, that'll preach, there's so much there. But one thing I want to point out is on that coin, there was an image, an engraved, uh, engraven image of Caesar. And so Jesus is saying, this coin, ultimately, as it pertains to your taxes, it belongs to Caesar. But, but see, the image of Caesar is on the coin. But when it comes to us and our children, the image of God is there right what we see in genesis that god created male and female in his image every single human being coins may have the image of caesar but people human beings have the image of god so we render unto caesar what is caesar's right we give our our taxes to the government you know what we shouldn't give to the government is our children because our children don't bear the image of caesar our children bear the image of god so stop sending your children to the state AKA public schools, and go ahead and render them unto God by training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's for free. All right, so going on now, uh, the, the verse 7, pay all to what is uh pay to all what is owed. And and again, prescriptive. Now we have specifics, we have clarity. What's the one thing? So we're to be in submission to the governing authorities, to the civil magistrate, recognizing that ultimately the civil magistrate in an in if they're obeying god what they're meant to be intended by god to be what they're not just intended but commanded by god to be by god's word by god's law is to be a servant of god a deacon of god a minister of god they minister in one sphere while while elders and deacons minister in another right the civil magistrate they they minister in the in the civil realm with the sword the physical sword through coercion uh legislating and executing god's law for civil citizens, whereas elders and deacons, they work in the realm of the church, the sphere of the church, using the, the sort of the spirit and persuasion through preaching, uh, changing um, and shaping the hearts of men. And, and so the one prescriptive uh, verse that, that gets into the clarity, the specifics of, of what it looks like for us as citizens of the state to submit to them and their authority is verse 7, and what it specifically says is pay taxes. And we can cross-reference and we can look at Jesus, who says, again, pay taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Or Jesus also says that that if a a Roman soldier uh, commands you to carry his gear and to go with him one mile, well, then go with him two miles, right? Go the extra mile. So ultimately, from Romans 13, Right? Because I, I think we're, we're drawing, there, there are people in the church right now drawing out applications from Romans 13 that, that are simply not there. We're doing eisegesis rather than exegesis. And I'll tell you why. I, I think the reason why we're doing eisegesis, typically the reason we do that is when we already have a presupposition, when we already have a foregone conclusion. Right? So if we've already decided, we've already capitulated, we've already compromised and decided that, that we don't want any trouble with the state, right? And, and so. Uh, we we want to do whatever the state tells us to do as the church, right? If that means we don't get to gather again as a church because gatherings of of seventy five and over or a hundred and over aren't are that those bans those particular bans over large gatherings that pertain to the church. If we've if we've decided that we think those bans won't be lifted for a year or two, then then we've got to somehow find a way. Uh, to do some exe- exegetical gymnastics in scripture so that we can assuage our guilty consciences for capitulating and not gathering as a church for a year or two, right? So all of a sudden we have a presupposition, we have a foregone conclusion and we begin to eisegete into texts like Romans 13 rather than exegeting. If we, if we exegete, we simply read out of Romans 13 what's actually there, then, then first we have to acknowledge it is primarily a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. And it's describing what government, it's not so much for citizens and what we're supposed to be, uh, it it ultimately is for government and what they're supposed to be. It it is a descriptive text with, with implicit commands for the civil magistrate itself saying, you governing authorities... You're under God, you governing authorities, you're God's deacon, you're God's minister, you're God's servant. So you need to legislate and execute God's law and not the commandments and traditions and laws of man. That's what it's saying. And then in verse 7, as it pertains to citizens submitting to the civil magistrate, it gets explicitly clear about what that looks like. in in what particular ways we are called to submit to the civil magistrate. And what are those ways? Paying taxes. And and so let let me say this as a general principle. From Romans 13, um, focusing primarily on the prescriptive um, type of of subjection type of submission paying taxes in verse 7 and then cross-referencing to what Jesus says about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and then cross-referencing further with what Jesus says about going the extra mile with somebody who's uh, um, a part of the militia that that is a part of the civil magistrate if we take all these different texts and we combine them together right we're doing it we're getting a whole biblical theology of, of a Christian's responsibility to submit to the civil magistrate in their dual citizenship, being a citizen of that sovereign state. If we take all that, we get a whole biblical theology. I think this is the rule of thumb that we should walk away with. Christians should submit even when governments are wrong, insofar as it is an impingement upon our personal freedom, right? It is unbiblical and wicked and wrong that that, that citizens of the state of California, particularly my state, are being taxed close to 30%. I I, I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says that any time the civil magistrate is is requiring taxes that rival or supersede the tithe, then it's wrong. See, God says 10% for the tithe to support what? His ministers in the sphere of the church. And the government also um, is, it is biblical for the government to exact a tax. The church takes a tithe to support the ministers of God in the sphere of the church. The government takes a tax, and that is biblical and right, to support the ministers of God in the civil magistrate. But when the civil magistrate, the the tax for the sphere of the state is three times higher than the tithe for the ministers of God in the church, there's a problem. And why are taxes so high? Because government has its, its grimy hands in a bunch of things that God has not called government to do government has no business in education, right? Children need to learn, right? They need to be educated. Well, whose responsibility? These three spheres, right? The family, the church, and the state. Whose responsibility is it to educate? Well, that's the family. Parents, fathers and mothers, fathers train up your children in the fear and abomination of the Lord. So education belongs not to the state, and, and not even to the church, certainly we want to instruct people in books of the Bible and the gospel and God's law, but ultimately education, training up a child, educating a child, instructing a child, it belongs to the sphere of the family. So why do we pay so much taxes? Well, we pay so many taxes because there's too many ministers, false ministers in the government, right? The reason why we pay so much taxes is because the government is doing more work than God has actually called it to do. It's involved in welfare. It's involved in education, even welfare. That is physical provision. Where does physical provision, that responsibility, what sphere has God given that responsibility to? Again, that's the family. Fathers are called, biological fathers and adopted fathers in the home, in the household, are called by God, commanded by God to physically make provision for the members of their home. And wherever they fail wherever they fail, widows and orphans, therefore, are called to be taken care of, if not by the father, because, because there's a failure there, then they're called to be taken care of by the church. So it's, it's family first, then it's church as a free safety, right? As a net to catch those who fall through the family. And then the government needs to mind its own business. The government doesn't even come into play. There's not one biblical text for the government providing physical provision aka welfare for its citizens that so education and physical provision that falls on the family right gospel and and discipleship that falls on the church right uh, administering the sacraments and and the the ordinary means of grace preaching the word uh, praying the word singing the word and seeing the word in the sacraments of the lord's supper and baptism that belongs to the church and then the sword, a military, physical protection for a sovereign nation, right? Those kinds of things and legislating certain laws and, 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 and through coercion, making sure that those laws are followed by its citizens, that's what belongs to the state. If the state would, would simply do only that which God called the state to do and get out of welfare, get out of education, get out of climate control and all these other things that the state has not been called to do, then we could have a smaller government. And if we had a smaller government, we could pay less taxes. And then instead of paying three times in taxes, what we pay in tithe, right, all of a sudden taxes would be closer to the tithe or hopefully in an ideal world, in what I believe is a biblically faithful world, the, the taxes would be lower than the tithe. We would give more to God than we give to the state right? More to God than what we give to Caesar. In a, in a biblical world, tithe should be about 10% to the ministers of God in the church, and and taxes should be probably between 5 and 8% to the ministers of God in the civil magistrate. But what we can see from this text, Romans 13, that's being used out of context again and again and again, is first, the bulk of it is prescriptive, not descriptive. And and the bulk of the prescriptive portion of this text is is primarily in reference to what government is commanded by God to do, what government should be, and, and, and what government should do, and how government is under God, and under God's authority, and under God's law. The one prescriptive part, as as it pertains to our, our subjugation, our submission to the civil magistrate, is saying this is exactly what it looks like for a Christian to submit to the government. And what does it look like? It looks like paying taxes. And and what do you do when the government is is not being biblical and therefore they are they are calling for more taxes than than what would be biblically right? Well, I think in those cases you simply submit. Because in those cases, it's simply an impingement upon our own personal freedom. And I think that is where we cross-reference to Jesus saying, Hey, render unto Caesar what is due to Caesar. Or if a if a Roman centurion tells you to pick up his gear and walk with him one mile, go ahead and, and double it. Go, go with him two miles. So when the civil magistrate is not following God's law and they're doing things that are unbiblical, we should still submit to them insofar, here's the rule of thumb, insofar as it is an, uh, an impingement on our personal freedom, right? Your personal freedom is ultimately what is at stake. I'm having to pay more taxes than I think it's biblically right for me to pay. Well, then go ahead and submit and pay those taxes, Because that's what we see in Romans 13, and we certainly see that when we cross-reference and get a whole biblical theology and we look at the teachings of Christ. What we don't see in Romans 13 is that we should submit to the civil magistrate when they tell us that we cannot obey some of the clearest New Testament commands for the church, namely Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that says, Do not forsake the gathering. Of the saints. And so I I want us to take a second. I want us to look at Hebrews. I'm almost done. But Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The Bible says this and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right? Let's actually go back one verse, verse 23. This is the plight of every Christian. This this is the challenge, the difficulty, uh, the temptation that you and I, every single Christian, is faced with daily. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, of our faith, without wavering, without capitulating, without compromising, for he promised, he who promised is faithful. So here's the deal. Verse 23, I'm gonna exegete 23, 24, and 25. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 23 is saying this, the default of the human heart, right, because sin still resides within the members of our being, even for the born-again Christian who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, because sin still resides within the members of our being, the default of the human heart, even the Christian heart, is to capitulate, to compromise, to waver, to waver. Therefore, right, that's the reality, all right, that's, that's the, the default temptation, the default problem, if you will. So now we have verse 24 getting to the solution. 24. Therefore, let us consider. Let's consider diligently how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Because the default of the heart, verse 23, is to waver, to capitulate, to compromise. Verse 24, we must consider how, how how we can be the body of Christ, how we can stir one another up, challenge one another to love and good works and not wavering and compromise now verse 25 now we're ready for the primary verse verse 25 says here's exactly how right it doesn't just say hey get creative and maybe you can stir one another up by by doing a virtual bible study well i I think you could right but but the text gets specific and it tells us the chief way there are other ways how we can stir one another up to love and good works so that we don't waver but the text gives us one chief way, one primary way that is regulated, it's prescribed by God, the chief way that we stir one another up to love and good works so that we don't waver, so that we don't capitulate, so that we don't compromise. It's verse 25, it says this, Not neglecting to meet together, not forsaking the gathering, as is the habit of some. Now notice this, everybody's looking at maybe the first half of this verse, they're not looking at the second half, and it is vital that we do so. It says, but encouraging one another, the implication again, looking to the first half, encouraging one another to love and good works by gathering together on the Lord's day. And I love this, not less when trying times come our way, not less with COVID-19, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me just challenge for a second, especially those dispensationalist pre mill guys out there. Let me just challenge you. You have even more of an imperative to gather with the church on the Lord's Day. If you're looking at the coronavirus and saying, oh my goodness, right, the end times are here, right? Jesus is going to return any moment. Well, then you have not all the less. The text says all the more, all the more reason to stir one another up to love and good works because according to your eschatology, the day is very, very near. And when it comes to stirring one another up to love and good works, you don't get to be creative in deciding how to do that right? We're good Christians. We're good biblical regulative principle Christians. God regulates how we love him, and he regulates how we love our neighbor. He regulates how we stir up one another to love and good works, and he has regulated it right here in this text. He says that the chief way in which we do stir one another up as the day draws near is by not forsaking the gathering. And for those who, like myself, who are not pre-mill dispensationalists, but are are covenant theologians with with more of an optimistic all-mill or even a post-mill persuasion with our eschatology, we still acknowledge that the day is drawing near, right? The day is drawing near and has been drawing near and will continue to draw near until Christ returns. And therefore, every day that goes by, the day is drawing even more and more near. And so we too can look at this without having to necessarily submit to the Left Behind series. We can still look at this text and say, yes, every passing day is becoming even more and more urgent, more and more imperative to stir one another up to love and good works so that we don't waver, so that we don't compromise. And God regulates the manner in which we stir one another uh, up to love and good works. And the chief way that he has, the chief method that he has commanded us to use is gathering together. So... We got to gather. But we don't want to spread a contagious disease. And and, and we don't necessarily want to rebel against the civil magistrate. as as, As much as we can, we want to submit to the civil magistrate. So, how can we do our very best to love our neighbor as far as not spreading a contagious disease that might be lethal to our elderly neighbor and those neighbors who are vulnerable, and do our best not to be? unnecessarily rebellious towards a civil magistrate how can we do all that but still obeying God's word and gathering well you'll have to tune into the next episode for that I hope it's been helpful so far and uh, I look forward to the next episode with you guys uh, coming out shortly as a special thank you for your gift of any amount we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store to access this offer visit rightresponseministries.com offer we highly recommend Pastor Joel's book Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support.